0: You are listening to The Effective Statistician, episode number 51, Data Science or Just Statistics on Non-Medical Data, a new horizon for statisticians, an interview with Steve Ruberg. Welcome to The Effective Statistician with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske, the weekly podcast for statisticians in the health sector designed to improve your leadership skills, while in your business acumen, and enhance your efficiency. The PSI conference is coming up. It happens on the 2nd to the 5th of June in London, and the early bird raid ends on March 20th. So register now at PSIweb.org. I have already registered and will present there as well. So come to London and let's meet there. It's really the best conference I know for statisticians in Pharma or CRO, I can think of. So, register now. In today's episode, we'll talk about data science and uh, what statisticians within Pharma can do about that. And we talk about data science beyond medical data. And for that, we have probably the best speaker that I can know of. It's Steve Ruberg. He was a keynote speaker at last year's conference in uh, Amsterdam and he did a very, very good presentation about it. Overall, there's a long tradition of statisticians working on clinical studies as well as other related data like preclinical data, observational data, but now we have this advent of big data and data science and so there's a lot of pull from the business side of pharma to employ statistical approaches there. So in this episode today, we talk about whether this is an area for medical statisticians to enter, whether you as a me- originally medical trained statisticians can enter into this field. And what you should know um, about that in terms of getting into there, whether it's something for you, how you can prepare in terms of these upcoming changes in the overall industry. This podcast is created in association with PSI, a global member organization dedicated to leading and promoting best practice and industry initiatives. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to special interest groups, the video on demand content library free registration to all PSI webinars and much, much more. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician, and this time it's just me without my co-host, Benjamin, but I have a very, very uh, good guest here, Steve Ruberg. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing very well, Alexander, and thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this.
0: Yes, it's awesome to have you on this uh, podcast, uh, sponsored by PSI, especially as you have given us great Keynote lecture at the PSI conference in Amsterdam.
1: Well, I very much enjoyed that entire PSI conference, and uh, I would highly recommend it to to any statistician working in the pharmaceutical industry. It was a wonderful way to learn, to make more connections, broaden my network, and uh, and have some real fun as well. So, thanks.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it was really an awesome conference. But before we go into a couple of things that you actually also covered in your keynote there, um, let's introduce yourself a little bit first.
1: Okay. My name is Steven Ruberg. Um, my schooling uh, started with mathematics and it ultimately led to a PhD in biostatistics. I spent a uh, over thirty eight years in the pharmaceutical industry, working um, in all aspects, I would say of the pharmaceutical industry, from preclinical statistics through clinical development, and ultimately in my career, getting into business statistics, if you were, or commercial analytics, which led to other areas of the company um, that I worked for uh, outside r and d. Uh, the last eighteen years of my career were spent at Eli Lillian Company where I held various roles, but the last 10 years I was the scientific leader and distinguished research fellow for advanced analytics um, within the company.
0: Yeah, and within this time, um, you actually worked also beyond the medical uh, data. You were quite instrumental in um Moving forward to the business analytics part, because that is a part that is more and more demanded uh, in the world. I'm not sure. Um, my perception is sometimes other industries are a little bit ahead of the farm industry in, in terms of that. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I would say this, that with the uh, kind of the data revolution that started you know, around the turn of the century, um, the explosion of internet business and the collection and capturing of electronic transactions. Uh, I guess I would say the business world discovered in a roundabout way or they kind of came through the back door and discovered that there's something called um, analytics or data and analytics. It, what's interesting to me is that um, they didn't they didn't necessarily call it statistics and so, words started popping up called data science or analytics or th- terms like that. Uh, data engineering was is a term that's out there. And um, uh, I-, I would say that the business world in general uh, is kind of rediscovering many of the things that, uh, that, that we've done in the past in statistics and just trying to apply it in a new light. Now, as far as your mm. question about the pharmaceutical industry, Yes, I do think that um, the pharmaceutical industry has been a little bit slow to get engaged with this, and I think there's some some reasons for it um, that that kind of makes sense. And that you know, pharmaceutical products aren't sold directly to consumers, and so a lot of the uh, you know from from the from the pharmaceutical company to the consumer, right? It's it's prescribed by a physician. It's you know. Um, Purchased maybe through a hospital pharmacy or some other retail pharmacy or in the United States, there's insurance companies that get involved in benefit managers and that kind of stuff. So so it's it's different. I think the other parts of the business world came to this more quickly because they sell products directly to consumers and they can learn about their consumers and their consumer behaviors and likes and preferences, whereas on the pharmaceutical side, there's there's other intermediaries in the process of of a, of a drug getting from a company to a patient.
0: Yeah, and the, I think the other thing is also that um, we have actually sales reps that visit the physicians on a regular basis. And um, that is not true in lots of other uh, business to customer kind of settings.
1: Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, uh, like I said, there's... There's intermediaries, and we try to influence these intermediaries, you know, sales reps who influence doctors or um, health outcomes people who maybe try to influence pharmacy, um, the people who make decisions about what drugs get on the pharmacy list and things like that. So, So it's a more complicated game. But nonetheless, I think the pharma industry in the last, you know, five to seven years has really started to think about this more deeply and figure out, how can we use data and analytics to help us um, in, in different ways to optimize our business?
0: So speaking about optimization of business, what kind of data is collected in these parts of the business that we are speaking about and, and which areas are we actually talking about?
1: So uh, I guess I'll talk broadly uh, about commercial statistics and, um, while I know this is sponsored by PSI, and Alexander, you're speaking to me from Germany, um, I would have to confess that the vast majority of my experience has been in the U.S. world, where there's um, there's more complex systems. There aren't single-payer systems or country systems like there are in many parts of Europe. And so um, um, some of the data that's collected is, you know, information on doctors and their prescribing habits. Um, how often do they prescribe drug A versus drug B uh, versus drug C? Um, and what do we know? We collect data about our sales reps and how often do they call on certain doctors. Um, we might even even have web pages set up to promote our our new our new treatments, um, and we can track. Who clicks on those web pages, who gives us information, how often do they click, et cetera. And so, through a variety of means, um, we're, we're collecting data about all these different dimensions of the marketplace. And of course, ultimately, doing very similar things to what we do in, uh, in clinical trials, where we try to assess the cause and effect, uh, the cause being a treatment and the effect being a clinical outcome, uh, trying to understand. What causes uh, affects prescribing behavior, whether it's a television advertisement, a sales call, a magazine advertisement, a conference presentation, what what are those complex mix of causes actually influence a doctor's prescribing behavior? So it's still about cause and effect. It's, um, it's just a more complicated world. Again, I, I speak primarily about the United States, which I know most. But I'm sure there's analogies in other markets as well.
0: Yeah, I think the U.S. has a couple of advantages in terms of uh, having a first focus in terms of business analytics. The first is it's a very, very large, homogeneous market. So um, if you have... um, Sales initiatives, you can actually test that in, in different areas and then compare different areas because you have a very large pool uh, to actually select from. The other point is it's very homogeneous from a... Um, Regulatory and uh, data privacy perspective, and also how data is collected, collected commercial data is collected. It's very, very homogeneous. That's another op- uh, opportunity, and lastly, of course, it's just a very, very large market. So um, all these things come together. That's why it's natural to first focus on on these areas. There's also a couple of differences in terms of how you can link. Uh, prescriptions to a specific customer, which is easier in the US than in most of the other parts of the world, where that is much more challenging. So, um, in, in other parts of the world, you, you may need to look into more kind of surrogate managers, like, um, um, uh, surveys that you conduct with, uh, physicians or with other healthcare providers to understand whether they, understand the benefits of your drug or whether they um, see the benefits of the drug or whether they actually know about the drug at all um, if you have a new drug on the market. So there's lots of differences in, in these kind of settings around the world.
1: Yeah, I would say the only thing where I might point out to, to any uh, people listening to this is that the, the homogeneity that you reference in the United States, um, it does exist on some levels. There are definitely federal regulations, rules, laws of whatever governing some of these activities, but there's still an awful lot of heterogeneity in that we have a a competitive business market for health insurance. And so there are many different health insurance companies who have different ways of covering treatments or tracking patients or different levels of sophistication for how they collect data. And uh, even how they store that data, the nomenclature associated with variables in those data sets, et cetera. And so integrating some of that that data uh, or trying to interpret it can be difficult because there are there are certainly many aspects of the healthcare market that are fragmented in the United States as well. So, yes, there is homogeneity from certain national perspectives but still quite a bit of heterogeneity and many challenges um, because of the fragmented insurance and healthcare delivery market that happens in the United States.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really a good point. If you look, for example, in uh, certain European countries where uh, the health insurance is government-owned, uh, mostly or completely, then, of course, this layer of complexity is taken away, at least within this country. Of course, you yes, then have still kind of the, the between-country <laughs> heterogeneity. Yeah. Uh, you also mentioned um, web pages, and and uh, I guess that also then goes into uh, social media um email marketing webinar marketing all these kind of other kind of e-commerce activities that um pharma companies are stepping more and more into um is that also a data, data area that is growing from your perspective
1: uh, yes i would say that um, that's definitely true um some people uh you know, you, you might refer to these as interventions. That might be a sophisticated term that we use in, in the medical world about uh, interventions into someone's um, disease or whatever. But there are interventions in the commercialization world, too, or many different ways that you can, say, touch um, a potential prescriber. Um, you mentioned some of those, but there's even more. Um, companies have lunch and learn sessions that they host. Um, They may have conferences where they have small um, or smaller group, uh, maybe sometimes pretty large kind of seminars about a disease state and, or maybe specifically about their drugs. Um, Yes. You can sign up for, um, for pushes, you know, from people's, uh, the company can send out pushes to doctors about new information if they want to sign up and get new information. Um, You know, there's all sorts of, different ways anymore that you can you can you can touch a physician or uh, a prescriber and um, they all come with different costs they all come with different levels of impact and uh, i know alexander you've been involved in uh, late stage uh, uh, clinical kind of uh, uh, development and interactions with health technology assessments and payers and whatnot And I know you understand and appreciate the very observational nature of the data. And I would say the commercial world definitely has um, this very observational nature of sales of your product or prescribing, you know, maybe going up or down. And there's all sorts of things going on in the marketplace, not only commercial things you're trying to do with advertising or Salesforce or whatnot, but the competitors are doing as well. And so trying to tease out the cause and effect of where should I invest my marketing dollar? Should it be more in magazine ads or television ads or conference seminars or lunch and learn sessions or more hire more sales reps to visit the doctors on a more regular basis? Um, All of those things are kind of potential um, ways that you can invest the next $10 million you have for marketing of your product. And the question that is starting to come up and where I've seen at least my experience at Lilly with some of our statisticians and some people in my group or commercial folks saying, what's the best way to allocate that $10 million? Um, What would give me the best ROI? Can you tell me whether these methods work, you know, for this kind of drug or in this kind of physician population? So, so yeah, there's, there's kind of, mixed models that people run um, and they use observational research methods and try to do some of these causal effect things um, just like in medical research, phase four or observational research. But the the interventions are different and the measured our desired outcomes are something related to prescribing or market share or revenue or things like that.
0: So, it could be just kind of um, you attend or you net attend uh, a webinar or something like this, and you then you see what is the difference in terms of prescription, or what is the difference in terms of um, recall on the sales message, or what is the um, Kind of attitudes that the uh, people have towards the company, all kind of different data that you can look into, and then of course, um, well, the attending the webinar is not randomised. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> so, right, exactly. So, and
0: yeah. That's, that's where kind of the the, interv- the observational nature comes into, and you so you work with propensity scores, and all these kind of different things. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, people I know people that will
1: talk you know, about. I was going to say, people will actually use the phrase propensity to prescribe, right, when they talk about So, So some of the language is very similar to the R&D or medical research world. Um, It's just how to apply it in a different setting of interventions, outcomes, and whatnot.
0: Yeah, but I know that there's also randomized experiments. So I actually r- ran some randomized experiments recently with with uh, with my email list, where I uh, wrote two different email headers and um, then sent them out uh, at random to a subset of my email list, looking into okay, what is the better performance in terms of the open rate, and then. So the rest of the email uh, email list got the better performing uh, subject line. Um, I think there are similar things that you can do also in the business world, isn't it Yes
1: yeah I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story that uh, early in our days of getting involved with business analytics a number of years ago, um, there was a I was involved in a meeting with some folks who were arguing about a marketing message for one of our products. And there were some people who felt like the lead part of the message should be about the, the efficacy of this compound and how well it performed. And then a secondary kind of message in the, in the in the advertising, whether it was print advertising or advertising that was on a radio or TV, the secondary part of the message would be about, oh, and this drug is safe and it's been tested in clinical trials, blah, blah, blah. Others felt the other way that First, you have to convince people that this product is safe. It's been tested and approved by the FDA, et cetera. And that should be the leading message to get everybody thinking, okay, here's a safe product, and then follow with the efficacy is as good as or better than competitors or whatnot. And there was this debate arguing, you know, and people saying, well, from my experience, this, and somebody else, well, yeah, but remember this product. (laughs) And, And I remember being involved in, I kind of called a timeout in the meeting and said, you know, we don't have to. We don't have to weigh everybody's opinions or see who can argue the loudest over this. Why don't we just do an experiment where we randomize, construct your messages, two different messages, and we'll randomize uh, the sales force to deliver these messages to different, you know, um, uh, to the different doctors that they visit, and we'll construct the randomization in a way that, you know, it's balanced by geography in the U.S. or it's balanced by private hospitals versus public hospitals you know we can we can design an experiment to try to balance some of these other you know confounding factors if you will or baseline characteristics Mm -hmm. and then let's do the randomization and then let's measure sales in these different areas um, over the course of three four six months and let's let the data tell us which message resonates best and after some convincing and effort um that that played out and uh uh, as I recall in that particular example, one message did a little better than another but it wasn't substantially so uh, significantly <laughs> yeah. so and um, yeah. so we went with a message that was that, that was actually diver- delivering slightly better results but I think there was a lesson kind of learned by all that we can sit around and pontificate and argue and describe our biases and our experiences about what will work and tell you know, tell each other what we think others will do and how they'll respond. Um, But let the the data speak. (laughs) Let's do the experiment and let the data speak. And some of those approaches became a little bit more routine. And uh, uh, I know Eli Lilly has done that kind of work in the past. And I suspect, though I'm no longer there, um, uh, I suspect that they're still doing controlled experiments to help nail down various aspects of uh, how to best optimize their marketing messages and marketing spend.
0: Yeah, and you can do these in all kind of different settings. You can do this, you know, in terms of your homepage, in terms of um, oh yes, uh, different things. You you know, you hand out by the sales reps, all kind of different things uh, you can do. You just need to make sure that you have a good kind of follow up in terms of uh, what your endpoint is. The really really n- interesting thing about this is also that it's it's not so much about. Um, that you want to show a statistically significant difference, because basically from a kind of cost perspective, both interventions are the same, whether, you know, uh, you have that message first or the other message first, is it, there's no kind of cost associated to it. So you just want to know what's better, yeah, or what's likely to be better. And and so you, that's a very, very interesting, different thinking about it.
1: Yes. And I will also say that um, we uh, we actually did some factorial experiments as well that, you know, the combination of uh, a sales rep visit followed by an email or an email followed by a sales rep's visit to see, you know, some people got the email, some people got a sales rep, some got both, some got one first, some got the other to see if there's some sort of interaction between some of these factors as well. So, Um, we also began to explore some kind of factorial experiments to understand, does it make a difference? And if it makes a difference, uh, you know, is the doctor more likely to remember or to prescribe more when there's an email followed up to a sales visit or whether there's a sales visit followed up to an email or something like that. So you can imagine experimental design, um, um, you know, playing a larger and larger role. It's kind of hard to do. It's, it's harder to do than when you're in a lab in R&D, but, um, but certainly uh, the, the ground is very fertile out there, I think, in pharmaceutical commercial business uh, for doing controlled experiments and factorial experiments and other kinds of experimental designs that we perhaps all learned in school, but apply it to the commercial setting to to figure out how to optimize your message, your dollars, and your allocation of resources.
0: So basically, from a, let's say, purely mathematical point of view, statisticians should be quite nicely equipped to, to help in these other fields and, and drive forward their innovations and, and better understanding of data. Um, but what is what would you see is, you know, lacking in, let's say, the usual medical statisticians, if I co- call them that way? um that would hinder him to, to actually be successful in these areas.
1: Yes, I think um there are definitely areas where some of the underlying mathematics or statistical thinking or whatever around design or recognizing and eliminating bias or things like that that we're, we're taught to think through, those things can definitely apply. Um, but I do think I do think there's Different kind of learnings that have to go on. Um, I think we all recognize that the effective statistician in the medical arena, uh, if that statistician is assigned to oncology projects or autoimmune or Alzheimer's disease, that it's incumbent on them to learn about Alzheimer's disease, how it's treated, what physicians look for, what does the healthcare system, you know, um, reimburse for, or Learning all of that stuff, what are the regulatory requirements or restrictions or precedents? Um, You have to learn all that to be an effective statistician in the medical arena if you're going to play on the Alzheimer's team or some oncology team or whatever. And I think it's no different in the business world. It takes time, but you have to learn their lingo. You have to learn the constraints. You have to learn how drugs are how they actually get from your manufacturing facility into a patient's hand, and what are all those different touch points and handoffs. Um, you got to understand government rules and regulations or hospital formularies. Um, All of those kinds of things um, are important to know. And so so in one sense, I'd say it's no different. Um, If you're going to be an effective statistician in any area, you've got to learn the language, the environment, the subject matter, Uh, to which you're applying your statistics, and it's no different in the business world. There's different things you have to learn, but um, you're going to have to sit down and learn those things. And it may be that somebody coming out of school with a business statistics degree is more readily equipped and knows the lingo and knows things about how business people think better than somebody who maybe, like myself, had originally got a degree in biostatistics, and learned a lot about clinical trials and clinical data and statistical methods, you know, related to that. But it's not impossible. I think um, statisticians can make that shift. And I certainly saw it at Eli Lilly where people made the shift from from uh, uh, the medical world to the commercial world and did so quite successfully because they were very strong in their statistical knowledge and understanding statistical principles, um,
0: et cetera. So one challenge that I could foresee is that for lots of the, let's say, medical data, it's kind of common sense that you as a statistician need to be involved. It's kind of your your default member of the team. um, And that may not necessarily be traditionally the case for these business areas. Did you see any kind of particular challenges with that for statisticians to kind of first explain what they actually bring to the table and um that they needed first to convince and and show their value uh
1: i mean i would say yes definitely the uh, um the folks that we worked with under very understandably so were slightly suspicious um they were kind of cautiously optimistic because they've You know, unless you had lived in a cave for the last 10 years, they'd all heard of big data and analytics. And (laughs) they knew this. They knew these areas were important. And they had all gone to business school and read read case studies about, you know, uh, the successes that Amazon had had or, you know, different different uh, banks or companies, you know. So they they always felt like I kind of felt like they were ready for something and they wanted something. But simultaneously, they were nervous, um, more nervous than an R&D because they were suspicious of, okay, here comes a bunch of PhD folks. And while having a PhD in an R&D setting in a pharma company you know, is very common, whether it's in biology or chemistry or medicine or whatever, it's not very common in the business world. And so there was always this kind of confidence that you had to gain from them that you're not going to do some pie in the sky ivory tower sophisticated thing that doesn't have any practical application or that you know me as a business person I could never understand what you're doing and I don't trust what you're doing and I don't believe in it because it's not you really don't understand the practicalities of business and gee your models are great but they're really not that great for the kinds of things I want to do so so there was this kind of push and pull of I want some help. I know this is important. I think this is a big deal, but a little bit of hesitancy and suspicion that somehow, you know we in the statistics profession or whatever might try to smother everybody with confusion and cleverness and really not help them, you know, address the business questions that they had. So um, there were definitely a growing process where we had over time, had to gain confidence. But as we demonstrated value, as we made predictions, as we built models, as we helped answer questions um, with with reliability, uh, the business people started to turn to us more and more and say, hey, um, I need help with this, or I have this question, do you have any ideas? How should we go about doing this or whatever? So, yeah, it it definitely took some time, but, um, and, and some were much more receptive than others,
0: right? Yeah, and I think with these kind of quick wins, you can, uh, you know, build trust and go on and build further trust and get allies on the business side that speak in favor of you to, to their peers. And with that, you get the ball rolling more and more, I guess. Yes.
1: I will say one other thing, Alexander, is I think um, a, a big difference from the medical world in uh, the clinical development world that many statisticians and pharma are in. Um, I, I would say it is um, that, that, that the problems in the paths forward uh, are more obvious than in the commercial or manufacturing or you know areas of the business outside of R&D. And I don't wanna minimize what the medical statisticians do. I was one of those, I grew up in that world and I know it's pretty, pretty doggone complicated. But to be honest, When you're studying a new oncology drug, you're pretty much looking at things like progression-free for survival and overall survival, right? When you're looking at, you know, uh, a a psoriasis drug or a rheumatoid arthritis drug, there are well-defined measures that have been used by regulatory agencies and clinical trialists for years and years. Mm. And you might tweak a patient population some, or you've got to understand dose and all that stuff. But I can tell you, there were times uh in the manufacturing world or in the commercialization, the, the launch of a new product, where the questions are vague or they're I want to do this better, but it's hard to describe what this is, and it's hard to describe what better is. And furthermore, it's hard to understand how to measure whatever better is, and what data would help me understand, you know, am I doing this better or not? Um, and so So you kind of got to have a very creative, open mind to help people formulate the problems. In the medical world, you know you got to do a phase three trial. It's probably going to be randomized between a treatment and a control of some sort. You know what the outcomes are. The regulators say you have to do a 52-week trial minimum or whatever. You got to have so many patients in your safety database. There's certain parameters that are are very well-defined. Whereas in the commercial world, it's kind of wide open. Um, all mm-hmm. of those things are kind of up for grabs and for discussion and for definition or whatnot. So, so in that sense, I do think it takes a, maybe a different level of listening and creativity to help find some solutions uh, for people in the business world.
0: Yeah, just as we talked about, kind of even the intervention itself can have so many different aspects. You know, far more different aspects than than let's say most of the therapies we we know of. Of course, there's more complex therapies and less complex therapies. But um, very often it's maybe just about the dose. Yeah, and, and uh, yeah, maybe you can complicate it a little bit with taking it in the morning or in the evening or, or these kind of things. But generally, if if you think about marketing. Uh, interventions they are so manifold you know even about kind of if you think about how you can and how many different ways you can set up a web page it's you know <laughs> even the dimensions are infinite <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and 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 the scales are markedly different and by that I mean in the United States, if you want to do a television advertising campaign, you're likely spending tens of millions of dollars on that. Um, it's a lot easier to do an email campaign, right? You spend a little time thinking about and constructing an email, and it costs virtually nothing to blast that out to thousands, tens of thousands of doctors or prescribers. But but then measuring the return on that investment and whatnot. So you can, you know, uh, In that sense, I think there's levels of complexity um, that don't quite exist in the clinical trial world uh, uh, on that kind of a scale.
0: So in terms of... um So statisticians, let's say coming back to them, you mentioned a couple of colleagues that went from the medical side more into the business side, and you also yourself um, dived into that. What was kind of from your personal background or from stories that you uh, heard from colleagues, that what made them go into these other areas? What kind of attracted them to go there?
1: Yeah. So um – First, I will say um, um, this this answer might be a little bit long, so feel free to interrupt me, Alexander, and and ask more questions. But when I was running advanced analytics, when we were getting that started um, inside Lilly, it was focused largely almost exclusively on R&D kinds of stuff and and within R&D, almost exclusively on clinical trials because that's where some of the big, most important and expensive issues are. And I can tell you that the CEO of our company came to visit my group um, after we had been in existence for a couple of years and had had some pretty good success stories to share. Um, He wanted to come and visit with us. And and he said, um, as you might hear many business folks say, use the phrase, follow the money. Where do we spend the most money? And he said, we actually spend the most money in commercialization and launching new products. The second most is in clinical development. The third most is in manufacturing. So follow the money, like start thinking about where you can get involved in the commercial side of things. And I was fortunate enough that at the time, the person who was running the U.S. business was very open-minded to analytics. And, and after a series of conversations with him and um, uh, and, and sharing some examples and showing some stories or copying him on some stories that were written in business magazines about successes and the use of data. He became very interested in like, let's do this, Steve. Let's let's do analytics for our business or whatnot. And it was a learning experience for me. And I said, okay, you know, I don't know exactly how to do this. I got a couple people who are curious, but we just need to sit down with some of your business people and start asking questions like what things, where do you think you need help? What questions don't you have answers to. Uh, where do you think you're wasting money or you think you could spend money better or differently? Let's just have those conversations. And he recognized that we were all kind of new at it and, and his, his other business folks did too. And so it took some time for us to learn the language, to learn how the, how the commercial systems worked and how payers and insurers and hospitals, you know, made decisions about about which medications to buy or to prescribe for patients. Um, it, it it just followed the process, like I said, of a medical statistician who might be involved with, you know, breast cancer research or whatever. And they have to learn all the different kinds of breast cancer and treatment types and paradigms and, you know, whatnot in patient populations. Um, they have to learn all that. We went through that same kind of learning process. I think it's very, very doable. Um, and, It just takes a statistician who is curious and interested. And thankfully, I had a few statisticians who were very curious and interested to take their lives and career in a whole new direction. With that said, um, there were times when internal statisticians, medical statisticians at Lilly, when we had openings and we asked if some of the medical statisticians wanted to apply or whatnot. There were many times where they were like, no, I don't want to go down that path. That's so different or so new or whatever that, that they didn't want to do it. So um, it does take a kind of a a little bit of a special person who has a a curiosity, a a willingness for some discomfort, because you're moving into an area where you now have very little expertise and may need to learn an awful lot. Um, But that willingness to, um, to collaborate, to learn, and to admit that maybe you're wrong, and try something else new and uh, learn again. So, um, so, I mean, that's the path I followed. I just continually talk to people, ask questions, um, and try tried to, tried to have the, the business folks focus on important business questions, not what analysis should we do, but what question do you have? What problem do you have? What answer do you need? And if I can understand that. Then I can go back and work with others to figure out what data should we collect or what analysis should we do with our existing data to help get a meaningful answer to those to those questions. So, anyway, those are those are a few thoughts on that in that line.
0: Yeah, I love the story with the money. Uh, I once remember I was talking to um, Marketeer, and he mentioned to me, I know that um, fifty of the percent of the money I'm spending is wasted. I just don't know which 50% <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. And, and kind of helping him with these kind of things and and um, stopping those things that are ineffective uh, makes a huge difference. And of course if you spend less money on marketing or you spend it more effectively, you have more money for, for the R&D. So, yeah, and or for is, other,
1: or for other more effective marketing techniques, right? You, the more money in the system to do whatever, to in, to reinvest in more important or more valuable activities rather than wasted stuff.
0: Yeah, that's there, one you know, important thing about this. I think many people think that marketing is just to kind of influence or bias physician or something like this. For me, it is very different. For me, it is first and foremost help understand the different decision makers to make the best decisions. And um, that is one of one of the key things I think about. And and therefore it really helps patients in, in the end.
1: Yeah, you know. Speaking of waste, um, if you'll allow me to tell a, a little story that is in the public domain mm-hmm. um, from Eli Lilly, and and it gets to your question about how do you make this transition, um, uh, you know, from from maybe the medical arena to the to the business or commercial or manufacturing arena, um, I, I can tell you there was there was one point in time where. Um, Lily was working on a, a product uh, an oncology product that came um, in a five milligram vial uh, and and as the company was scaling up to more clinical trials and, and and looking for other doses or whatever that they might give they said well let's let's add a 10 milligram vial to this um, you know to, for this product and then when we do our clinical trial we'll have a little more flexibility for some larger doses and, and whatnot. And it just took a curious person to to ask the question in a meeting when that was being discussed. A statistician happened to be there, wasn't one of my statisticians per se, but one of the team statisticians who just innocently asked, why 10 milligrams? Where did that come from? And why do you think that's the best dosage vial to have? And everybody said, well, you know, it'll allow us to... You know, increase the dose and we can put combinations of 10 and 5 milligrams together and, you know, study more doses and all that. And um, the statistician just simply said, well, do you mind if we take a look at this and just see maybe is there a different way to think about this? And it led down a path of wastage with oncology products, which are very expensive. So, for example, if you have a 5 and 10 milligram vial, uh, you have to use a Uh, well, let's just say, yeah, 5 and a 10 milligram vial. If a patient is dosed on a body surface or weight milligram per kilogram basis, which is usually the case in oncology, let's just say it works out that they need 6 milligrams. Well, you would use your 10 milligram vial and throw, uh, give the patient 6 and throw 4 milligrams away. And when you start to think about it, the question becomes what's the right combination of vial dosage strengths to minimize wastage in patients. Um, and this led to a whole study of what's the, what's the average body weight of patients with this kind of particular tumor? And if we wanted to minimize wastage, what should we do? And it turned out that adding a 10 milligram vial to a 5 milligram vial really did very, very little. And when you sit back and think about it, it's their multiples of each other. And what you want is you want. You want vial dosages that are not multiples of each other so that when you put combinations together, you can cover a lot more possible doses. It turned out that the, the optimal combinations was a three milligram vial and a four milligram vial. And with three and four milligrams, you can virtually get exactly what you want in terms of dosing patients. But as we went down this path, there's all sorts of other constraints like you're not allowed to use more than four vials per patient because it's too cumbersome for the pharmacy or the nurse or the doctor or whoever. And these vials, these containers only come in certain volumes and the drug can only be concentrated in, certain, in a certain range in order for it to stay in solution. And you got to have enough headspace in each vial because they, they fill up a little gap of headspace between the solution and the vial cap with nitrogen because it helps preserve the stability of the molecule. So now all of a sudden, you've got these constraints of, you know, you got to buy different equipment to, to handle these different size vials and fill them different volumes. And so it led one of our people to a huge optimization problem of, given all these other constraints, what are the optimal vial strengths that should be used to minimize wastage of oncology doses or or treatments or whatever, which is a very, very expensive wastage. And all of that work, uh, one example of that work was actually published in the Journal of Medical Economics. Um, And if anybody wanted to look it up, it was published in 2018, uh, the Journal of Medical Economics. The lead author is a woman named Lisa Hess, and it talks about drug wastage and cost to the healthcare system, um, you know, when using an oncology treatment
0: and we can um, put that to the show notes so if you go to the yeah. show notes you can uh, find that there yeah
1: yeah awesome yeah. so so you can see again it's a it's a different mindset of asking questions and digging in and trying to figure out the problems are a bit more nebulous um and not as clear as i said in in some of the medical arena um again i don't want to imply that it's simple there but when somebody studies the next rheumatoid arthritis drug, there's been a lot of rheumatoid arthritis drugs that have been studied and a lot of precedents. And people pretty much understand the regulatory environment and the medical environment and what needs to be done, um, you know, to, to have trials that would be considerable considered uh, producing substantial evidence of effectiveness and safety.
0: So what I really love about the story is the initial question. Where is this coming yeah. from? This curiosity, yes. this kind of um, really wanting to understand where it's coming from and having this um, enough know-how to know that it's not a kind of complete random question. Um, that is a really, really nice way. And it shows that asking the right question is sometimes much more powerful than having the right answers.
1: Yes, It's very true. It's kind of the art of asking the the right question, or being able to uh, ask enough questions to get at kind of the essence of uh, what you're trying to do. So, and there's many other examples of where the statisticians were kind of in a meeting or in a place and just kind of said, "Well, why are you doing it that way? Or why would you assume this? Or why is that the decision you're making?" And just by asking that question, sparks a conversation and a more in depth analysis or whatever that led to some counterintuitive solutions or answers at time, um, you know, or different answers at least than what was maybe being done kind of based on tradition and history and whatnot.
0: Yeah. So in terms of all the kind of advantages, all the kind of different challenges, we talked a lot about that. Uh, Now, if the listener of this podcast wants to dive into this field, how can he best learn more about this field?
1: Well, um, I think I, I initially my learning came from reading literature that was outside the medical world. Um, I mean, I think I think I have a kind of a general, natural kind of broad curiosity. Um, I mean, in the United States, I I subscribe to Business Week, and I would read I read Business Week every week, right? And there I would read some pretty amazing stories um, and think about, well, gee, there's an analogy to that in the pharma industry with how this company standardized some sort of data. And they did this to, you know, identify better customers or processes or optimize something within their company. And so some of it just came from reading things that are outside the medical world, Um, reading some business books, you know. there's, there's there's plenty of, of business books that uh, describe some of these things like From Good to Great or, um, you know, the uh, oh, there's a book, Blown to Bits, The Economics of Information. And uh, so so some of it's just reading that and becoming more familiar with the business world. Uh, if you're in a company right now and you want to get engaged, I would say if you're a medical statistician, uh, maybe particularly if you're in some late stages of your clinical development or phase three kinds of stuff. Um, maybe ask to get connected to the people who are the, the marketing leaders or the launch leaders um, to learn about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And, and then asking those questions. Um, I, I know one, one thing that can be a very nice transition for somebody in the clinical medical development world that leads to the marketing is, um, how are we going to launch this? How are we going to launch this this particular um, treatment? <clears throat> and what I mean by how are we going to launch it? Like, where are we going to launch it first? Or who are we going to launch it to? Uh, maybe there's I don't know. I'll make you know tens of thousands of rheumatologists in the United States. Are you going to try to launch it to all, you know, all of them simultaneously, or are you going to focus on certain rheumatologists to get the message out? Are they Are they thought leaders or are they high prescribers? Um, You know, we did some work where we actually looked at classifying doctors into early adopters versus late adopters. Um, And we certainly found that there are certainly doctors in the United States who never prescribed a new medication until it had been on the market for two years. Maybe they're just more cautious and they, they take a wait and see. And we found other doctors who you know, when new drugs come on the market, they're the first ones to try it. They want to give their patients this new medication. They themselves want to learn about how it works, et cetera. And so you start to ask yourself, how do I identify those kinds of doctors? And you start to ask, how are we going to launch this product? And who are we going to target our messages to? So that could be a, a natural transition because a person working in phase three trials um, and particularly analyzing and making submissions to regulatory agencies, obviously they know a lot of the ins and outs of the treatment, and it might be a natural transition for them to work with some marketing folks to say, okay, who are you targeting or how can I help you analyze data to understand where we might get the biggest bang for our buck in the early days of this launch? No need having sales reps or advertising messages directed at these guys who who never prescribe a drug until it's been on the market for a couple of years, right? It's just wasted time and money and effort. Yep. So those are the kinds of things where you might be able to start to get involved and show some value very early on um, and some maybe some quicker wins uh, and, and then, you know, open the door to more opportunities.
0: I completely agree. I have worked with um, sales and marketing very, very closely in the last years at at Lilly, and um, that helped me to understand lots about our business. Um, Also, you know, I had once a day with a sales rep in the field, and that opened my eyes of how our data that we, you know, generate in clinical trials actually is... Communicated to the uh, to the physician in a one to one setting, and all these kind of things really help you understand where you can have an impact. And another kind of nice area where you can. Uh, learn about uh, statistical engagement in these more commercial activities is also the upcoming PSI webinar. So if you listen to this before the 12th of March 2019, you can register on the PSI homepage for this webinar. It's free for all PSI members. And a little nominal charge for non-PSI members, so hopefully you become a PSI member. And it has three great speakers that will speak about the different aspects of uh, business analytics. So uh, Camilo Zapata was actually a former Lily colleague uh, that also worked in um, uh, Steve's group. I uh, will introduce into the field of business analytics um, within the context of pharmaceutical companies. Then, Elena Baptista, who is still working at Lilly, will talk about how we can measure the effectiveness of our communications. And we talked a lot about that during the um, interview today. And uh, finally, Lucy from GSK will speak about communicating efficacy data in a manner appropriate for healthcare professionals. So lots of different um, topics that you can learn about on the 12th of March. And finally, I want to give you a final hint. Um, the special interest group for data science has just started within PSI. And I will give the details of how to connect there in the show notes. So just go to the show notes and you'll find all the uh, other materials there. So with that, you have a couple of action items, very practical ones from um, both Steve and myself that you can follow up on this webinar. And with that, I want to say a big thank you to Steve. It was a... Great, great interview. I have didn't expect anything different to that based on the presentation (laughs) at PSI and all the other presentations (laughs) I have seen. And yeah, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Alexander.
1: Thank you, Alexander, again for giving me the opportunity to speak with you. I've enjoyed this, and uh, I hope your listeners um, get some valuable information out of this and help uh, expand and improve the influence of statistics in the pharmaceutical industry more broadly.
0: Absolutely. And I think that was also a really, really nice part in your presentation in Amsterdam at the PSI conference where you talked about different ingredients that you need to actually change in this direction and if you're missing one of these ingredients that, that leads to frustration or false starts or whatsoever so i still remember yes, yes. this really really nice part so and, then, and
1: i think alexander just as just as another plug that um That uh, keynote talk is also on the PSI website recorded, is it not?
0: Exactly, exactly. So if you go to the video on demand area of the PSI website, you can find that talk as well. And I will put that into the show notes as well. Awesome. Okay, thank you again, Alexander, and all the best to you. Thanks so much. Bye. This show was created in association with PSI. Next week, we'll talk about cluster analysis, so a typical data science approach. Thanks for listening. Please visit theeffectivestatistician.com to find the show notes that we mentioned in the episode today and learn more about our podcast to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector.